You may find it helpful to uh, have Luke chapter 14 in front of you. We're on page uh, 1048. Some of you I know were here last week when we covered the early part of this chapter. Jesus is at a banquet uh, with the, the great and the good all around him. And someone, as a guest, picks up the thought that uh, Jesus has been uh, dealing with and says, as verse 15 records it, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And that sets the, that's the opener for uh, what we have in front of us this morning. And one of the immediate challenges is going to say, well, where are we? Which of the different characters are we in the story? Where do we think that we might fit in? One of the problems in the parables of Jesus is it might be that we fit in in a number of different places. We've, we've gone to the end. If we were listening earlier, you'll realize that there are different categories. Well, perhaps we think of ourselves as those who are the rich and the respectable. But we feel nervous because we hear that they get excluded. Perhaps we think of ourselves as uh, the poor or the blind, the crippled, the weak. We don't really want to think of ourselves in that way, but we hear that they get included. So where are we going to be? Well, we have to pay attention, of course, first of all, to what the stories are actually saying. And first, we have to pay attention to the stories of the rich. This certain man, in verse 16, in our parable, he is a rich man. He can afford to lay on a banquet. He's a man who could afford to invite many guests. He moves in a certain kind of world. And from the excuses he receives, we know that his guests moved in that same world. They are respectable people. They know the social rules. The conventions are very clear in the time of Jesus. You invite to your table those who make you look good putting it bluntly. And the convention was that you sent out two invitations. The first was a notification to say this is going to be happening, and that gave you time to find out who else was already going to be uh, likely to attend. Uh, these days, we'd probably send emails saying, are you going to um, John Smith's on Friday? No. Oh, well, if you're not going, I don't think I want to go. Or perhaps if you are going, I don't think I want to go. <laughs> and then the second would go around as a reminder. I did tell you about this, and now it's actually happening. The host is a man who has a servant that he keeps running around with invitations. And his rich friends, no doubt, all say yes the first time around. Because now it's at the time of the banquet. It's not just the invitation. That was earlier in verse 16. But now at the time of the banquet... In verse 17, he sent out his servant to all those people who've said yes. But meanwhile, they've been on their emails and they've discovered who's actually going. And the second message arrives, you can come now, everything is ready, and they all alike began to make excuses. They're interesting excuses. It's hard to know how much Jesus expects us to build on them. Uh, there's a wonderful rude one. Those who have been nice and respectable up to now become simply rude. The first one is the idle excuse. 
He's acquired an asset, this man, and he simply wants to look at it. We may know the kind of person Jesus means, well-off, but not really a doer, an acquirer. Just more stuff to rejoice in, to feel good about, to be secure of. A field to look over. How marvellous. The second is the active excuse. This person wants to try out his new six-litre turbocharged go-faster oxen. <laughs> this is the hands-on man. And this is five yoke of oxen that he's bought. Now that is a lot of oxen. They reckon that that would be enough oxen to, um, uh, to drive a lot of land. This was about five or six times the average amount of land owned at the time. It's a lot of oxen for a lot of possessions. And we may either know the person who has to have the latest kit, the faster car, the smaller mobile, the dinkiest DVD player. And then we say to ourselves, well, yes, but those may be true, but then surely the third is slightly different. The first two have been concerned with things that they've acquired. Now comes one all romantically saying, I, I've just got married, uh, so, so I can't come to the feast. Except I don't think so. I rather suspect this is the most insulting of all. It's a man hiding behind his wife. It's just as acquisitive as the, other, as the others. We can forget all romantic notions of love and stuff. The New Testament doesn't really have that kind of approach to human relationships. This would be a wife in an arranged marriage involving fairly precise indications of what loving duties were entailed. The rights over a wife were pretty much akin to property rights. Now, you may know that the Old Testament law forbade a man from entering upon military service in the first year of his marriage. Because, not, well, not because it was a wonderful romantic concession, but simply because a, a, a man who's thinking about his wife, whom he's just married, is no use in the battlefield. So it's no great um, difficulty for that man to say, yes, of course I'll come to your banquet. Of course he should have been there. To stay away is simply rude. He's hiding behind his wife. Probably not the first man ever to do so. All these respectable people are invited and all alike give rude answers eventually. And I want to take a moment out. We're going to look at those who do get to the banquet, but I want to think again a little further about how much these wealthy, respectable people are like us. There was a report a little while ago from uh, an outfit called the Publicist Trends Group. It's a consumer investigation outfit concerning consumer unhappiness. It's the result of very extensive market research. It identifies and names six new needs that are out there that consumption is expected to deal with. What's fascinating is that it sounds like an archbishop's Easter sermon. Quote, We believe that we suffer from continuous emotional dissatisfaction because we have competing needs that can never be truly satisfied altogether. Consumer expenditure is ever rising. The problem 
is that we always want more than we've got and are thus never satisfied or fulfilled. We can gain esteem through our possessions, but can never rise above this towards greater personal fulfillment. End of quote. Well, we could have told them that. But for a consumer trend report in the marketplace to observe it is very satisfying to those of us who knew it all along. All these respectable people are not merely wealthy, but they're fascinated by what they've acquired. And it sounds from this research as though that fascination is part of it. They'd acquired stuff. It wasn't inherited, nor did it just arrive. They'd acquired it. There was that buzz of achieving. In every case, they've just acquired it. How exciting. They were fulfilling the need to get more, whether more capital, more action, or even a person. They have satisfactions, brief and fleeting, instant but fading. Immediate acquisition is more important to them than the intense but communal experience of a gracious and joyful banquet. So let's turn our attention to the others. <clears throat> Not to the rich, but to the wretched. Because wretched is what they are. The owner of the house has a twofold strategy at this point. It's important to realize, again, how much at this point the uh, owner of the house completely overturns the social expectations. I, I don't know if you've ever in your professional life, I hope not a personal life, but whether you've ever touched the edges of a real scandal. Well, a scandal is what this is. No uh, householder should be doing in their world what this man is about to do. So first of all, he says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. That was already a massive scandal. You simply didn't have those people to your table. So the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And then the master tells his servant to go out, no longer just to the town, where there would have been some security, where perhaps you would have been at least recognized that you had the, your place at that corner. And although they may not have given you much money, at least you were safe. But no, now go into the roads and country lanes. Go further out to where the real outcasts are. All of these people would be assumed to be outside God's blessing. It would be assumed that they were poor, crippled, blind, and lame. They were outcast because God was not on their side. These are the wretched of the earth. So wretched that in verse 23, the householder has to say, make them come in. Not force them at the point of the sword, but you, you will have to convince them that I really mean it when I say, you are invited. <clears throat> they will say, you can't possibly be inviting me. Look at me. This just doesn't happen in the real world. And so the servant is going to have to say to them, yes, this is the real world, and yes, I do really mean it is you whom I am inviting, or the master is inviting. Get in there. They're not only the wretched, they're the reluctant wretched. 
They really are the ones, says the master, that I want to have to my party. And from being reluctant, those who make the effort will find they are rewarded. My house will be full. The line is very precisely drawn. <clears throat> For them there will be reward. My house will be full of feasting. For the others, the invited, the rude rich, they're not even going to get a taste, according to verse 24. Well, with that background, how are we supposed to interact with the story? Where do we fit? Well, in many ways, we don't. Because we can't pretend that Jesus, as it were, really told the story for our benefit. He told it as he told it. And we can only get to it via the way that he tells it. And it's always important to look at the structure of a parable. Very often, as here that it's the last thing that's said that has the main point. Now, you see, you could go and say, well, hang on, this is obviously a parable that has a number of connections to the sort of things that Jesus often talked about, especially because we've talked about the resurrection of the righteous, the feast in the kingdom of God. Clearly, the rich householder is God. God's inviting a, 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 initially a group of settled people to his uh, banquet. Uh, they say no, and so he goes to other people. You don't have to think about that for a moment and realize, well, that's nonsense. We don't believe, do we, in a God who first of all invites the comfortable and respectable and only when they say no goes out to the uh, disrespectable, unrespectful, whatever the opposite is. We don't believe in that. So there are not that many points of correspondence that we can nail down. The one thing we can be sure of is that the point is in that last verse. They won't get a taste. The story is a warning. And it's a warning about how to behave now. Because it's the rude rich that Jesus is complaining about, who could have behaved differently when the invitation went out and then when the banquet uh, was announced. Who, is it these, who are these people who, whom Jesus is against? They're those who are complacent now. Those who could live differently now. And so two final points. The question about us and the truth about us. We sang, didn't we? I am a new creation. How do you know fundamentally where your security is in God? Well, perhaps you might say, I know because I am a new creation. Great. That, I guess, is how many of us know. Deep inside, we know that we are a new creation. And yet, if the rest of the world does not see us behaving any differently from the old creation, then the rest of the world may be right to raise an eyebrow and say, what's going on? We might say, I am saved by faith. Yes, we are. But it's also true, according to Scripture, then that saving faith shows up in life. And for me, when I read this story, the challenge is this. Am I ever extravagantly uncalculating? The, the challenge is for the complacent. And insofar as I am complacent, working out whether I really want to, to have this particular banquet. The question is, am I ever extravagantly uncalculating? sharing the behavior of this rich man at the end, 
who could have stayed complacent and just hung out with his mates. This is public behavior, because everything then was public. And one of the challenges in our life, because we live in a northern climate and have these great big thick walls to keep out the rain and the cold, is how do we live Christianly publicly? What is there about my life spiritually that is public? Or do I look as... I know a number of friends have complained to me that they feel their image looks like this. I just look like a nice person. Actually, that's the last thing I think I feel like inside, but that's not the point. I know someone uh, in our congregation who uh, is a Christian, uh, and uh, of course, therefore, a Christian at work. And one of the things that deeply bugs him is this sense that at work, in his workplace, he is portrayed to other people, and he knows this, as simply a good person. It is frustrating to him. What is there about our lives that is public? Some of you were here uh, a few years ago when, um, fairly spontaneously, I didn't know I was going to do it till that, till that morning, I invited the, the men of the church to leave their shoes behind so we could give them away. Now, what was interesting to me about that um, uh, incident was how many column inches it got afterwards uh, from the EDP and even the sun. <laughs> Admittedly, it got about 10 column inches in the EDP and about three quarters of an inch in the sun, but hey, it was public. It was extravagantly uncalculating what we did that day. I honor those among us who are involved in the ministry uh, for the street pastors, those who go out on, the, on club nights, uh, Friday and Saturday particularly, those who support them in prayer, as they seek to bring comfort to those who are just lost. There is a time to be wise and prudent, sorting out our giving of every kind, so much here, so much there. But there's also a time to recognize that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. Time to live so that others notice what extravagance belief leads to. And it's not only about money. It's about living now as though Christ has overturned everything, even though it may not look like it, as though Christ is the basis of everything, even though it may look a little like what others have. It was a great privilege to be yesterday uh, leading at the marriage of Tim and Caroline. And to say those words that are extraordinary at the beginning of the Christian marriage service, we pray that they may be united together as Christ is united with his church. Now, for those of us who are married, what a calling to be public in our marriages and to live out publicly in marriage what it means for Christ to be united to his church. As though every moment, every action, points to Jesus being Lord. And it's a reversal of everything the world values. And if you are tempted to forget that, it may be that you haven't been involved in the other kind of wedding for a while. Uh, I think I still have somewhere in my office, a rather embarrassing box of very pink magazines. And I think 
they're booklets. I think they're called UK Bride. Um, and I get about 60 of them. Um, uh, and I get them delivered to me uh, as rural dean so that clergy in the deanery can give them out to um, uh, their uh, other clergy. I see another rural dean up there, and he'll recognize the, the phenomenon, no doubt. And we get that one because it, we've, the Church of England has paid for an insert that runs through... Uh, some of those pages saying, and if you want to get married, why not think about a church wedding? And it sits there like a sort of squatting on the page, these paragraphs in the middle of invitations to colour-coordinated linens and um, uh, fancy uh, events at fancy locations with fancy horses pulling your fancy carriages. And unless you've been recently to a really, really tacky pink wedding, you've probably got no idea of the difference between that and what we did here yesterday. But it can be extraordinary. It's just one day at the beginning. And then we invite, uh, we invite ourselves to go off into a different world in Christian marriage. It's about this kind of extravagance. It's about making one more for Sunday lunch before you even know whom you're going to invite. It's about emptying your wallet into that bag that went round earlier, even though you give every month very prudently, very carefully. I was brought up on middle-class values of care and prudence and thrift and saving. But of course, there's nothing more intrinsically Christian about that than any other model. It's a worldly model. Some are good, some not so good. Some parts of it are good, some parts of it are not so good. Jesus in this parable is giving me the standard by which my values will be assessed. The question about us, for me anyway, is are we ever extravagantly uncalculating? The truth about us, which is the second point, is we can be that, we should be that, if we remember where we started from. Objects of mercy who should have known wrath we're filled with unspeakable joy, we sang. That's who we are. We may have started off immensely rich and respectable from the world's point of view, as the world looked at it. The truth is we all start off poor, crippled, blind, lame, outcast. And then, as Lewis said in introducing one of the songs, we forget. We start to think that God loves us because he basically ought to. We are the street sleepers of our world. And if your heart resists that description, then pay attention to your heart, because it is hardening. If we've come to Christ, if we've accepted that invitation, then what we've learned, however secure our background may have appeared, is that we are simply the street sleepers in the country lanes. The danger for all of us is that we lose the desperation of longing for Jesus. Am I desperate for Jesus Christ? It's not about wealth and security for me, it's about settlement. Have I forgotten my calling to be caught up in a public kingdom? Am I standing beside Jesus as he gleefully blows raspberries at the established order? because he knows a deeper truth, that it's founded on sand, and it will blow away. And all that will remain 
is those who've said yes to the invitation. Do I live now so that others could tell that Jesus is Lord? That has its own point, I think. But I do just want to mention one particular thing. Not shoes, you'll be glad to know this time. We haven't yet done anything for Pakistan. I think we should. Um, but that thought has only come to me in this week. I can only therefore say it this week. We need to organize ourselves because as ever, to maximize the benefit, we need to print out the envelopes that say um, we'd like uh, gift aid to be added to this. So next Sunday, and probably for a couple of Sundays afterwards, because the Sunday after that is Bank Holiday Sunday, for a couple of Sundays, we'll keep open an appeal for, for the uh, victims of Pakistan. Uh, as was prayed earlier, 20 million people affected. Imagine what it must feel like not to know where your children are or your grandchildren. And we give extravagantly, not because of the difference it makes to them necessarily, because it will only be a drop in the ocean, however much we give, but the difference it makes to us. We'll print the envelopes. Uh, I invite you to be uh, extravagantly generous. Uh, and we will therefore be making a public statement. We'll give it through Tear Fund, uh, because it's a safe way of giving and it's resistant to the corruption of that country. Uh, but I invite you to be extravagant because of the difference it will mean for you and for our corporate public witness. Can we pray together? O oh God, you declare your almighty power most chiefly in showing mercy. Mercifully grant to us such a measure of your grace that we, running the way of your commandments, may receive your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.